there is a kind of unhealthy emphasis on Central Europeanness as opposed to Eastern Europeanness in a kind of competition about who is more white than someone else. When the West won the Cold War, the Western corporations' goal was not to share their capital with people in the East. Welcome to Gogorin, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors of cultural journals from throughout Europe, and sometimes beyond. Eurozine is an online magazine and a network of more than 90 journals who bring diverse voices to a greater conversation. I am Editor-in-Chief Rieka Kingopop, and today I'm talking with a man of a great many identities, the author of the book White But Not Quite. Ivan Kolmar is Professor of Anthropology at the University of Toronto. He's Czech and was raised with Hungarian as his mother tongue, and this diverse background really factors into the work we'll be discussing today. Because in this episode, we'll tackle the 21st century competition for racial hegemony within Europe, white privilege, and the myth and mystery of the elusive, well, Central and Eastern Europe. The occasion for this discussion is his recent article in Eurozine of the provocative title Why the West Leads Central Europe to Stay in Its Eastern European Place. This podcast episode also has an extended version with bonus material available only to our patrons. You can become a patron by pledging as little as 5 euros a month or more for even more giveaways and exclusive content on patreon.com slash eurozine. Eurozine has been offering quality journalism for free for over two decades and your involvement can help us maintain this international mission. If you are wishing to help a quality online magazine sustain its work for a European public sphere, you can find all the relevant information at eurozine.com support. Thank you. And let's get into it. Very welcome, Ivan, and thanks for coming over. Servus. We are going to talk in English because our mutual mother tongue is a bit too obscure <laughs> for most of the listeners. Right. Thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to it. I'm very glad we get to talk again. We met in person once before. Although we share a mother tongue, we talk as a Czech and a Hungarian this time around. Mm -hmm. You are based in Canada for a long, long time, and you were born and raised in Czechia, right? Right. Actually, I was born in the Czech Republic, but I grew up in Slovakia. Oh, indeed. That's even better. <laughs> so there's quite some regional, Visegrad regional coverage here. At least the coverage of the perspective, and that's going to be the core topic of today. We are talking connected to your article published in Eurozine last September, right. titled Why the West Needs Central Europe to Stay in Its Eastern European Place. But let's be frank, and we are quite upfront about this in the article too, this is based on a book chapter from your recently published book of the fantastical title, White But Not Quite. Right. Let's start with this title, which is as telling as enigmatic. What do you mean by saying Central Europeans? We'll get into the terminology a bit later on. Are considered within Europe and globally high, but not high. What I mean to say by it is that Central Europeans, both objectively and in their minds, and in the minds of people outside Central Europe, do belong with the white world, that is to say, 
the West broadly defined Europe and also the world of white privilege. Central Europeans do belong to that world, but not quite, meaning that they're kind of at the margins of it and in many ways between it and the rest of the world. So between the core area, often racialized as white, of the global political and economic system and the more peripheral areas of it. So to put it more simply, what I meant to say is that Central Europe is not as central to Europe as many Central Europeans would like it to be. And the title is also an opportunity to explore the position of Central Europe in the racialized system of power and domination in the world. I think it also refers to a psychological phenomenon because the subtitle of my book is Central Europe's Illiberal Revolt. And I try to connect illiberalism, this sort of attack on liberal democracy that in Central Europe is best exemplified by Viktor Orban and his government in Hungary. I try to characterize the revolt as a kind of attempt by people who are not totally accorded, as they see it, the privilege and respect that what I would call perhaps very radically white supremacy accords to white people. There are people who are white but feel that they should be given more privilege and more respect on that basis and not be confused with people who are from outside the white core of the Western world or Europe. So I'm also relating that position of being white but not quite to the psychological motivation that people may have, not only in Central Europe, but throughout the peripheral kind of white areas of the world, or at least of Europe and North America, in their revolt against a liberal democracy. So indeed, there is quite some talk, and rightfully so, People in positions of relative privilege, wanting more privilege, essentially striving for a less equitable position. In your argument, you place this Eastern Central European, we'll get into this complaint, into a wider framework, which is happening virtually across most social strata globally. There's a rise, or maybe not a rise in complaints or discontent. Mm -hmm with the the change in power position, maybe it's just more out in the open Mm -hmm. than it used to be, say, well, maybe 25 years ago or 30 years ago, when at least I was taught to be ashamed of such feelings. You can have such ambitions, but you shouldn't be upfront about them. You know, that was sort of, uh, that was the zeitgeist, at least around where I grew up within Mm -hmm. Hungary. is, is that a fair reading? I like your reading very much, Reka. I feel that you're right. Although when discontent is more out in the open, it probably doesn't intensify and spreads because it's now legitimized. But I agree with you that the kind of demand to protect white male heterosexual supremacy It's not new and it was there all the time, even when it was, let's say, less acceptable to express it. 
So what happened? How come that it's more okay to express it now? I feel that there are many reasons for this. One of them being that the promise of the kind of liberal democracy that seemed to be triumphant when communism fell in 1989, this promise has not been fulfilled. And it came with uh, demands for recognizing the rights of minorities and a more sort of open, uh, not hateful attitude to strangers of all kinds. But when people saw that, uh, and not only in the uh, ex-communist countries, but globally, that that sort of triumphant, let's say neoliberal globalist version of democracy was not delivering either happiness or lasting economic prosperity, although it did deliver some economic prosperity. There was disappointment and the enthusiasm waned. But I think also in concrete historical terms, the fact that this discontent was successfully capitalized on by Orban in Hungary was really quite important for the whole world. And then, of course, that it was capitalized on by Donald Trump was quite decisive. So that now there are millions and millions of people who think that it's quite legitimate to openly express an illiberal attitude. Yeah, I don't know if that's what you had in mind, but I see it that way. Yeah, this is exactly the direction I was inquiring. You know, because my students interviewed you, I taught your article in a seminar run jointly by Alta Media, the Media Studies Institute within Alta University in Budapest and Yurzing, to international students nonetheless, none of whom are from Europe, which is all the better mm-hmm. when teaching them about the theories of the East within Europe. And there's a reason why I didn't specifically use Eastern Europe there. Right. Of course, this is also a subject of debate. We keep returning to this point. Obviously, they have their own experiences from Central and South America and North Africa, from Central or Southeastern Asia. Mm-hmm. Very, very different takes on this whole regionality. To some of them, for instance, the Kazakh students, it just sounded dumb that we're arguing about whether we're Eastern or Central, because in their perspective, we're the West. Mm -hmm. And by we, they mean, of course, Hungary in this case. To others, like a Vietnamese student, she felt like this whole negative connotation attributed to the East doesn't work for her outside of this cultural context, because she grew up objectively in the East and doesn't associate anything negative or derogative with that. Obviously. Interestingly, for the Central and Southern Americans, this discourse was very parallel to what they grew up in. And one of them, Cela Lopez Soto, said, which I want to credit her for because it really expresses a core experience when we're talking about this, is that all of us should be entitled to being in the center of our own worlds. Mm-hmm. And yet, somehow these discourses have robbed us of this position. Right. More or less, and now a little bit extrapolating from here and from the experiences of this semester working with these students, it seems to me that starting from the Enlightenment through a long time and a long period of intellectual production, Mm -hmm. mostly in Europe, 
intellectuals have produced a center that is removed, that is almost always removed from most of the people. Mm -hmm. So there is a notion that place where I am at, except from dual centers of power, as in positions of power, mm -hmm. you're always removed from the center. Mm -hmm. You are removed from the center in Brussels too, the second you are living in the outskirts and have a low paying job mm -hmm. or are not white, et cetera, right? This removed position within one's own framework, like mental framework, right. is very interesting to me because it truly has less than zero to do with geography. Right. Right? How do you feel about this mental geography? I agree with everything you've said, except that it has zero to do with geography, because I think it has also to do with geography. And we're talking about an extremely complex issue here. I'll try to stick with what I think is the central point that most of us, most of the time, are actually not at the center and that everywhere you're peripheralized in some way or another. But then you said yourself, as soon as you step away from Brussels, so I'm sure even in Brussels there are people who are peripheralized because of the things that you said, that they may not be white or their social class economic situation may disadvantage them. But still there is a geographic aspect to it, Brussels or outside of Brussels. Okay. And likewise in Europe, is it Northwestern Europe or the rest of Europe? The way I see it is that the peripherality is both and at the same time, or alternately, geographic and social. My objective in not only the Eurozine article and my book, but in my work in general, is really to buttress this point that the peripherality, the white but not quite situation of Central Europeans is not because of some kind of Eastern European heritage or some kind of long-standing centuries, long cleavage between East and West in Europe, but rather it's because of the general kind of dynamic of peripheralization and the response to it that doesn't need to be geographic, even though it can be. People who are living in the Appalachians in the United States or people who live in Andalusia in Spain are in very much a similar situation, a lot of them, as people in Central Europe. These are all peripheral areas of the Western world. But also in New York and in London and in Brussels, there are people who are somewhat spatialized too. People who are a little bit on the, or a lot on the periphery, who don't enjoy the benefits of this glamorous new global situation, but live in working class neighborhoods or racialized neighborhoods in those same cities. So I agree with you that it's not necessarily a geographical phenomenon, nor is its essence geographical, but there is a geographical aspect. So if I could say a little more on that, this is a way to relate what's going on to the history of colonial domination. Because in colonial domination and colonial type domination, 
the capital is accumulated in the core of the imperial system. So in the colonizing or imperial country, that's where the capital mostly flows to and that's where it's accumulated. The labor for accumulating this capital is done by people who often are, and certainly in the colonial situation, at a more remote location. Okay, so now I imagine a wall between the colonizing power and the colonies, and the capital flows into the colonizing power, and in the colonies, people are deemed not to be justifiably accumulating capital, but are meant to just provide labor. This relationship, capital accumulation in one area and labor in the other, and it's maybe more complicated because we have to also think of the fact that the colonized areas also provide markets for products that generate capital for the core. But the wall between the colonizing and the colonized areas is racialized. This is where ideologies come into place that suggest that those who are in the colonized areas are the type of humans who are not able to or not entitled to accumulate capital. How does that relate to Central Europe and areas in the quote-unquote white periphery of the Western world, because these are not colonized areas. But the dynamic is very similar. In one area, you have the people who accumulate capital, and in the other areas, you have people who supposedly should not be accumulating it, according to this ideology. So after 1989, I think no one would argue the objective of transnational corporations not to share their capital with people in Central and Eastern Europe, but to penetrate those markets and to find sources of cheap labor there that are near shore, and therefore their products could be brought into the core area more cheaply than from, let's say, Vietnam. Likewise, even in the Western world, in the peripheral areas which tend to be emptying of people today, is not where the capital accumulation takes place. So there are these discourses, this talk, that I perhaps controversially call racist, and which say that the people in those areas are not, how should I put it colloquially, not organized enough, not smart enough, not honest enough, and not perhaps even politically conscious enough to have a full-fledged liberal democratic capitalist society. So what I'm saying here is that the idea that those people are white but not quite is actually generated from the sources of capital accumulation, from the core who racialize people in these areas as not legitimately entitled to capital accumulation so that they could be relegated to providers of cheap labor and a kind of captive market for products. I feel that this is perceived by people in the peripheral areas as an insult. It's not just a psychological thing, but those areas do have business people they do have capital there too. So the result is a conflict between the local capital and the transnational capital. 
And that's how I see the illiberal revolt. It's people in the peripheral areas who are insulted, but they're insulted because they're in competition with transnational corporations. So it's kind of perverted because I don't agree with it, obviously. It's a kind of revolt against neoliberal globalism, which wanted to function under colonial pattern in these areas, including Central Europe. Indeed, but the revolt not for deeper or more profound equality, but for a different distribution of power and ownership or involvement in the distribution of ownership. While you were talking, you said that the peripheries function as apart from, of course, cheap labor force and cheap cheap raw material. And yeah, raw material. It is hard to forget that even certain forms of ancient Athenian democracy was sustained on grain imports from the region of what today is Odessa. Mm-hmm, <laughs> this has mm-hmm, been going mm-hmm. on in some form or another for an incredibly long time. Yeah. So the peripheries also serve as additional markets for power and positions of power and accumulating power. Right. So it's not just economical, this is also a deeply political thing. And then this can feel as intervention, internal affairs, mm. or additional competition, mm for those who didn't want any competition in the first place. Yeah. This is not really a struggle for equality because this is not a democratic struggle, Mm -hmm. at least what you term as the illiberal revolt. Right. Let's talk just a little bit, I think, this basis about your notion of Eastern Europeanism. Right. I think with the statement, which you also say might sound controversial, although I agree with you that there's a lot of argument to be made on Mm -hmm. the side, that this is a form of racism. Mm -hmm. It also has deep historic roots, Mm -hmm. some of which Yanis Painayobitis also Mm -hmm. works, writes and talks about, Mm -hmm. being based in anti-Slavismus, for instance, and uh, race theory, but not only these historical forms of race theory. What do you mean, nevertheless, by the term Eastern Europeanism? I've been struggling with this terminology, although I don't think I've struggled with Eastern Europeanism. I started using it a few years back because I was thinking that we need a name for the attitudes and practices against Eastern Europeans, and we don't have a name for it. I was thinking of Orientalism as used by Edward Said, and I think it's a good comparison because a lot of people think that Edward Said meant by Orientalism some kind of a hatred against the Orient. I think he did, but I feel that his book Orientalism from 1978 is one of those books with a great title, but which not very many people have read. Because when you read it, you see that it's actually a mixed bag. And that Orientalism has also to do with, for example, the academic study of the Orient. So it's not always an open hatred, but it's nevertheless a kind of putting down, to put it colloquially, a part of the world that's embedded in political and social practices of the interaction between the West and the Orient. So to parallel Orientalism, I decided we need a word for prejudice and practices connected to the study of Eastern Europeans. That's what I mean by that term, Eastern Europeanism, because I don't think we had a term or have another term for it. 
Yeah, I don't think either. Although there's great comedy content that is striving for this. Some of my personal favorites include semi-academic tractates on the use of the Adidas stripes on the hood of your car to show how <laughs> Slav you are. Ouch. And other similar, mainly Serbian and Polish comedy, which I'm a huge fan of. Although there's probably not really anything in the region that I'm not going to cry as long as I can understand it. It does capture, I think, the public sentiment, especially post-Brexit, about this surprisingly outspoken deep hatred of Eastern Europeans' influx, quote-unquote influx, into Western European communities who are now deeply baffled that the people... Of course, I'm exaggerating here, but, you know, they probably don't want to meet the people who break their strawberries mm -hmm. and flood their cream. Some of them, at least. The ones who voted for Brexit surely did it. Yeah. But it is not limited to the United Kingdom. Nevertheless, let me take issue here with one thing. We don't have to agree on this. I just want to mention that you consistently use the phrase Central Europe. Right. And mathematically and geographically, it's very accurate in terms of the region you mainly talk about. And you view terminology Eastern Europe as a means of externalizing these countries. Yeah. You don't have to agree with me, but I am quite fond of calling myself and my region Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. It's more a personal thing simply because I've always been Eastern within, even within my hometown and then within my country. I kind of took the attitude of owning this Easternness and rather arguing that there's actually nothing wrong with yeah. being Eastern. Yeah. Nevertheless, let's talk about this because the terminology that you use has a big history and has quite some weight. So how did you settle on this one? At a very great risk to my reputation, I will have to admit that when I started working on it, I unreflectingly identified with Central Europe, which is, I do believe, mostly what people in the Visegrad countries will say they're living at. I haven't actually done any empirical research, but I'm quite confident that if you ask people in the four countries I study, which part of Europe do you live in? they would say Central Europe and not Eastern Europe. But there's much more to it than that because Eastern Europeanism is transitive. There is a chapter in my book on the history of Central Europe. It's a Europe. traveling trophy, sort of. Yeah. Right? That we pass on to our neighbors. Everyone is Eastern around me except for me. Exactly. And, you know, this is very typical of the ressentiment of people who are marginalized, but still within some kind of a sphere of power. So people who are white, but not quite, they want to show that they actually are more white and there are other white people who are less white than them. Now, we don't use the term white in Europe in this way, but let's say European or Western. Unfortunately, a racialized synonym of civilized. People feel that those who are to the east of them, very roughly speaking, may be more Eastern than they are themselves. And in the history of Central Europe, this was a problem for Germany. The concept of Central Europe historically comes from Germany. I discussed this in a chapter in my book. But after World War I was adopted by both Poland and Czechoslovakia, 
who felt that they were Central Europe, but in public prejudice for the way this functions is that Germans think that Czechs are Eastern European and Czechs think that Slovaks are more Eastern and Slovaks may think that Ukrainians are more Eastern and Ukrainians may think that Russians are more Eastern. And I, Ivan Kalmar, hope that I don't think this way, but I would have to admit that as a Czech-born person, this may have colored my perception and I repent of it because I know what you're saying. I think Reka and others have said this. When you are othered with a label, you should embrace the label and not deny it. And I don't want to, and I'm not actually saying that Central Europe is not Eastern Europe, but I am saying that there is a Central Europe that's different from the rest of Eastern Europe. How is it different? I think it's my second or third chapter where I actually look at statistics. And when we look at reported facts about gross uh, domestic product or attitudes to Jews and Muslims, or attitudes about same-sex marriage across Europe. If we put the data into some kind of an objective algorithm, for example, which countries are above the average and which are below the average, we really do see a very radical three-part division of Europe where the West is different from the center and the south, which are different from the east. And what comes out of this algorithm is not a cut between Western and Eastern Europe. So I think in some way to maintain the separateness of Central Europe is important to undermine the overgeneralizing, flattening and racist generalization that all Eastern Europeans from Estonia to Bulgaria and Eastern Germany to Kazakhstan are all the same. I do think that it is worth looking at, but also the dynamic that exists now is definitely one that I don't want to support, where saying Central European means more white, in my terms, than Eastern European. Where do we see an example of this, I think, now is Ukraine. i collecting examples of where Ukrainians say that they're in the center of Europe. And it just happens all the time that both Zelensky and Ukrainian generals and many Ukrainian spokespeople, but even people in Western Europe, will describe Ukraine as being in the middle of Europe. I just am watching the television series Servant of the People with Zelensky in it. And it happened in the last episode that we were watching. It's a very common phrase. But Ukraine is actually, from the perspective of people in the Visegrad Four, not in the center of Europe, <laughs> because they are. There is a kind of rivalry, perhaps, or a kind of unhealthy, I would say, emphasis on Central Europeanness, as opposed to Eastern Europeanness, in a kind of competition about who is more white than someone else. And you know, I think many people have recently critiqued Central European allegiance in this way. I'm very thankful that you got this off of your chest <laughs> and by the power vested in me by an unfortunate surname that means priest, 
I hereby absolve you <laughs> of your Central European bias. Right. Say ten Hail Marys and eat some sauerkraut and then we're even. <laughs> thank you for this perspective and thank you for the conversation. Thank you very much, Rekha. Pleasure. We will link the article, of course, in the show notes and your book. And I will be looking forward to meeting you soon again, hopefully. Likewise. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Gogarin, the Eurozine podcast with anthropologist Ivan Kornmeier from Toronto. And if you want more, you can listen to bonus material available exclusively for patrons. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash This episode wouldn't have been possible without our patron support. As many of you already know, Eurozine has been through a rough couple of years and our readers and supporters' dedication has gotten us through thick and thin. We are bouncing back and launching exciting new projects this spring, of which we'll bring you news very, very soon. But until then, please subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave a review so more people can find us. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, so you'll always know what's worth thinking about. Gogorin, the Eurozine podcast, is produced by Elias Neuboga. The production is supported by the European Cultural Foundation, I've been editor-in-chief Rika Kingapa, and I hope you've enjoyed the program. <laughs>